Beloved, let's take up our Bibles and read the Bible with regard to the hearing from heaven through the preaching of the gospel in light of the Bible. We're going to read at four different passages, and they're parallel passages, that is, they all are inspired to teach the same thing and sometimes in slightly different words as God wrote through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. We're going to read through three Gospels that record the calling of Jesus to disciples to deny themselves and take up their cross. Let's first begin at Mark chapter 8, then we'll go to Luke chapter 9, Matthew 10 and Matthew 16, but Mark 8, first of all, verses 34 through 38. The setting for all of these passages, or at least for three of them, is Jesus has elicited from Peter the confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he has communicated to Peter and all of the disciples that he must suffer and die and the third day rise again. Jesus had to rebuke Peter, remember, because he didn't like that, the prospect of his Savior's suffering. He thought it was beneath him, and then he had to be rebuked. But here, after this, Jesus issues a call of discipleship. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples, also he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark 8. Now we turn to Luke chapter 9 and verses 23 through 27. Verses 23 through 37 of Luke 9. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now we turn to Matthew, first chapter 10, and we've considered that already as we go through the book of Matthew. Matthew 10, I just want to refer you to that. At this time, it's parallel to what Jesus says in Matthew 16, which will be our text. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. 
He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And now we turn to Matthew 16, and we'll, we'll stick with this as we preach through these, this chapter, verses 24 through 28. We'll refer sometimes to the other uh, versions that add things to this narrative. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thus far we read the word of God. And as we have been going through these, this passage in this book of Matthew, we've seen that at this point in Caesarea Philippi, way to the north, the northernmost part of his journeys with the disciples, Jesus has revealed to them uh, or has solicited, elicited from them a confession of his own identity. And when he asked, therefore, who do you think that I am, he, he, was, he was told by Peter what Peter thought and what the disciples were led to believe, that he was the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. So that was a right confession. Jesus then begins not only to commend Peter, but to embellish upon the confession and to say also that Upon this confession and Peter as a leader in one way, not in the Roman Catholic way, but as a leader, Jesus would build his church and there would be this wonderful ecclesia, this church institute not only, but a church of believers that would be founded on the truth of Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. Then uh, Jesus goes on to speak of something that would be a stumbling block and that is the necessity of his having to suffer. And then from that time onward, in fact, Jesus began to teach that this kingdom of his that he would establish would be through his suffering and his death, and then his resurrection only through that death. And we know at that time, as we talked about last time, Peter, that didn't sit well with Peter and he said, far be it from you. And Jesus had to rebuke him as he would a devil. And so he was resolute in his confession, even though it wouldn't be popular, not only with Peter, but with many. Now at this time, Jesus having said that he must suffer, he will say, we must suffer. The disciples who would follow Jesus, they themselves must suffer if need be, even unto death. They must deny themselves 
and they must take up their cross and lose their life even that they might find it and be rewarded in the heavenly kingdom. This is the subject of our sermon this evening. May God bless us. We've heard this morning in the church service here of what we might say is the positive of of the Christian life, and that is hallowing the name of God. And here, what some have said is negative, but is really a positive, is a passage that goes along with that, which teaches of the essence of discipleship. And beloved, even as many have a hard time with Jesus' suffering and his dying for sinners and his having to die, so, and even much more, people have a problem with their own suffering. And there's many who call themselves Christians, but for them, there is no cross. Who are you, people of God, who go by the name people of God? Who am I? Are we those who are true disciples? Jesus says, if anyone will follow me, let him deny himself and herself. And that's for you children, too. Deny yourself and what you want for the sake of Jesus and even take up your cross. What of it? Is that the reality of our being here and of when we walk out the door? So that's the question. May the Holy Spirit probe our hearts and we be able to answer in the affirmative. That's, that's me by the grace of God because Jesus is everything to me. So, if any will follow, that's the title of my sermon. And I would say in the first place, follow we will, by the grace of God. Secondly, we will follow Jesus along the impossible way that he sets forth. And finally, with the hope of heaven, the hope beyond the world. So, follow me. Now, I want to not play with that word, but milk that word for all it means and can mean. Follow me, uh, follow me or following anyone can simply mean, do you, do you get it? Do you understand? Do you follow me? We say. Do you get that? And the teacher will say that. Do you follow me, students? And no doubt Jesus is alluding to that because <clears throat> there's been things he's been saying that you have to get. If you're going to follow Jesus actively and as a disciple, you have to have an understanding of who this Jesus is you're following and what it costs and what it's worth and what it means. So do we follow Jesus? Do we get him? Do we understand who he is? Who he's revealed to be, that's the first thing. If you're going to follow someone, you better know who it is. Well, we know Jesus to be God. To follow Jesus is to follow God. This is the confession of the Christian church based on the word of God. He's the great child who was born, and yet his name is Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace of Isaiah. That's Jesus the child born, the son given, who is God with us. 
This one is, of course, a man. He's dwelling among men as he speaks to the disciples who are men and who understand with their own ears the words that come from an earthly human mouth, Jesus. And he is this God and he is this man. This is what Matthew has revealed uh, to us according to the scriptures as the Messiah. This is the one foretold who would be God with us in this great, big, and new way, this wonderful way, incarnation. He's God who is born in the person of the Son, taking on human flesh, not compromising his divinity by this great leap down or coming down, but affirming it in all of its glory as the God who finds this way in his own mind to justify sinners and also himself by not sweeping sin under the rug, but dealing with it justly and with mercy in Jesus on the cross. Here's one whom to follow is to follow God the Messiah, who is the sin bearer, is to follow one who will go to the cross, and Jesus hasn't even mentioned that yet as part of his suffering, though he alludes to it when he says we must take up our crosses. He's getting there. He'll reveal this. There will be this crucifixion, this public execution and humiliation. We must follow Jesus in that. We must get that, not stumble over that, but acknowledge it. And not just as sometimes I see the catechism students and with glassy eyes say, yeah, I get this truth of predestination. I'm not sure about it. But we follow it truly and understand this because our God wants an intelligent discipleship. He wants you to know things and not just to leave your mind at the door. Mother uh, or ignorance is not the mother of devotion, as some say. Knowledge is, the knowledge of God, which is eternal life. So you get Jesus, you understand who he is, you understand that he's the savior of sinners, and that he's the Lord of sinners. And when you follow him, you're acknowledging you're saved by him, you want to be saved by him, you are saved by him, and you'll submit to his lordship. That's all that's involved. And you follow him wherever he goes. And you follow just him. Note, as one has noted here, and it's a way of understanding this, there's nothing between follow and me. There's nothing between the words follow and me. And that speaks to our following Jesus. Nothing may be between you who follow and the Jesus you follow. And that really speaks of the whole nature of following Jesus. We don't follow the world. We renounce ourselves, as we'll see presently, and we don't uh, follow our sins. We constantly and daily follow him and daily take up our, our cross. And it's not just a Sunday thing. It's a Monday through Sunday thing. It's this wonderful life of a Christian, not just a confession, but it's getting him and therefore believing him and therefore walking after him. And some have suggested that the word follow here uh, speaks to us of a following which is going alongside of him. 
Not so sure about that. I think even that, excuse me, when Jesus says, here, follow me, he's alluding to the fact that Peter, when he said, it's not for you to suffer, he wasn't following Jesus. He was trying to lead Jesus and tell him the way it should be. When Jesus says, follow me, he says, trust me, and, and you follow my words and my doctrine, and, and don't try to lead me because I know better than you, and don't try to teach me or save me from myself. What a pathetic denial Peter, Peter made when he complained about Jesus' suffering. Yes, to follow Jesus is to follow his teachings, Indeed, we're told here to follow Jesus, his person. But let's remember, to follow Jesus' person is to follow and to go along with and to get and to live by and believe his principles. So we follow the person, not just abstractly, but as revealed in the Bible, what he teaches of himself and and of the gospel, the free grace of God to sinners, of the holy life as well. So we follow Jesus as he leads us in practices that are to follow true Christians who say they're forgiven. They show this in their sanctified life, in their serving God in Jesus revealed. So following Jesus is following his his principles, his precepts, and it's like the church of all ages and even the church that's revealed In the book of Revelation, the church of the redeemed, in Revelation 14, verse 4, Jesus speaks of the redeemed, actually, the 144,000 redeemed from the earth, says, these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God, and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. These justified ones, the followers, the disciples, show their their status with God in walking in the holy life because they're following Jesus, who's holy. Amazing what this means for Christians, of course, It means, as we follow Jesus and just Jesus and nothing's in between follow and me, we're not going the way of our flesh. We're not going back. Even when we have to take this cross up, there's no turning back, as the hymn goes. They follow him wherever he leads. And they follow his principles and his precepts and the practices. Though the whole world is saying, Now, that's ridiculous. That's folly. Why would you follow him and follow just him? And when you're following, that is, when the others who are with you is so not much, and when the Hollywood stars aren't following him, why why are you following him? And when the popular religions are following another Jesus, why are you following that one, the one of the cross? The one who says you have to take up a cross to follow him. That's not very popular. It's not going to sell. 
It's not going to be for moving and shaking City Hall and making policy in this world of, of worldlings, frankly. Deal with it, Christians. Don't be so theoretical and perfectionist and ideal and heaven and pie in the sky and by and by. Following Jesus? How can that be? The world's reaction to the church's following Jesus, and to your following Jesus, children, and to mine, and to all of us following Jesus, is it's like unto the way we naturally react. This is not of nature. All along in this whole pericope, this passage where Jesus is identifying himself and eliciting a confession of himself and teaching of himself. He's been saying there's things of heaven, like Peter's confession, flesh and blood hath not revealed it to you, but my Father in heaven. And there's things below of Satan, which deny the, the need of the suffering of Christ and which say that even in the mouths of ignorant disciples. You don't need to do that, Jesus. I don't need to do that. That's too hard. But that's our flesh. And this tells us that this confession here is a confession of grace. Only grace can lead us to follow Jesus. There's a lot of hymnody that's kind of trashy out there, beloved, and the worst kind are are the ones that emphasize man and his decisions for Jesus. As if we can decide to follow Jesus all on our own. And as if we must make the first choice here. As if this is all on our own, or maybe with a little help of grace, but fundamentally the whole thing, the whole business of discipleship depends on ourself. Well, beloved, the Bible teaches that this is impossible. We are dead men and women and even children as we are first born in Adam. That's the Bible, Ephesians 2, 1 and following. We're dead in sins, dead in trespasses and sins. And there's none righteous, no, not one. And there's none, Romans 3, who seeks after God. Which means there's none who would choose for God unless God choose them and God turn on the lights and God make us willing, as the psalmist says, in the day of his power. That's the, what's called the Reformed or Presbyterian faith. If you're not understanding how important that is, just know this is the truth of the Bible. The truth of the faith of our fathers and of ours living still by the grace of God is the grace of God. Not the works of man, not the will of man even, the choosing on your own to decide for Jesus. Paul says, Romans 9, 16, it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, nor of him who follows, nor of him who computes, but of God who shows mercy. So, Jesus is speaking here of this following And we are saying, yes, I will follow. 
And that's of grace, that's of the free and merited favor of God. Do you know that, believer? If not for the grace of God, you follow the world, you follow your flesh, you follow the crowd, you follow your friends, peers. They tell you where to go. They tell you how to dress. They tell you how to fornicate. What's fun and what's fulfilling? And Jesus says, you follow me. And if anyone will follow me, and that's not just in the future, but if anyone decides to follow me, let him take up or deny himself and take up his cross. But let's understand, if anyone decides to follow Jesus, it will be a work of grace a work of grace, and the response of grace, yes, we will follow. Thank God for grace, which also leads us along the impossible way. Because Jesus describes for us in very drastic terms how it is we are to follow. If anyone desires to come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So following has to do with denying yourself and taking up your cross. And we can infer, because Jesus says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, that denying yourself and taking up your cross involves losing your life. So those three things. Let's deal with them. And by the way, someone wrote a 281-page book, A Treatise of Self-Denial. I probably have it if you want to read it. I haven't looked through my many volumes. But there's far less than 281 people, I fear, that really seriously know what it is to practice self-denial. Now, I'm exaggerating on the low side. God's people, all of them, do and must deny themselves. But there's so few compared to all the ones who confess Christ. Deny yourself. Let him deny himself, Jesus. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Now, what does that mean? What do you think that means? Well, beloved, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean deny things to yourself. I gave up smoking for Lent. I gave up ice cream for Lent. I gave up gluten for Lent, whatever. It doesn't mean denying those things to yourself. It may be. That, that's involved in it, but this is far grander and far more drastic. It means denying you, denying yourself. It's, this is you denying you. Whoever, that's you, would follow me, deny you. <laughs> what is that? Deny yourself. What does that mean? I just heard we are to affirm ourselves. We have our rights, don't we? And, 
We ought to be more positive about our our self-image and so on. And Jesus says, deny yourself. And that is drastic. Deny completely yourself. That's the word. Deny yourself completely. And it's so complete that he uses a synonymous phrase, lose your life, to describe what denying yourself and taking up your cross is. It's that drastic. Now, Jesus isn't talking about suicide here. Let's get over that. Suicide is terrible sin. Jesus, in fact, is talking about how you deny yourself and your sins and your selfish ambitions that are apart from the kingdom so that you gain your life. He's giving us the way of life and discipleship that leads to life and glory. But you got to deny that self, he says. It means absolute surrender, giving over yourself as you are in yourself, as you would exist apart from God in Jesus revealed, as you would be selfish children. You deny yourself. And oftentimes we learn what that means when we are in relationships, Romans 15, for example, the first verses, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but is written the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's not pleasing yourself. That's denying yourself. It's denying the first place in line. It's denying the first place in status and in worth. And it's saying, I am here to promote another self, and that is Jesus. And that includes the person right in front of me or under the side of me, whom I'm going to esteem highly and more highly than myself and whom I'm not going to elbow out of the way. Denying ourself is, is all about renouncing whatever comes in the way, whatever habit I have or, or tendency I have or practice I have or friends I have would get between me and following Jesus. So it would be get out of the way between follow and me everything that you can think of. Everything, beloved, not just a couple of things that people might know about that are glaring sins. It's every tendency, every desire. It's yourself, after all. You have tendencies, you have desires, you have thoughts, you have agendas, you have plans, and so do I. Jesus is saying, be gone with them. I am yours and you are mine in this discipleship savior thing, you know, he's saying. And I want all of you and everything about you and all your desires. This is about loving God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul and the neighbor for God's sake. And that means, beloved, it's about loving Jesus, who is God with us, the way to the Father. This is... Connected also with denying 
the flesh in your own bosom, your, that carnal part of you. It's denying the selfish temptations of, of, of Satan. It's being otherworldly and in these perilous times when Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, men are characterized by love of self, you're saying no to that. And even though there's a good loving of self, we have to love the neighbor as ourself. And we're not those who, who say, I, I'm not worth anything and I hate myself and all of that. But with regard to sin, that's what Jesus is speaking here. And we're not going to let our selfish self rule over us. Well, how are we doing in that? That's just the first of the three. Deny self, take up your cross, and lose your life. How do we do on that? So different from this selfie world, this selfish world, this me, myself, and I world, this me too world, this you too world, this I matter, get out of my way world, this I identify this way or that way and I'm certainly not going to identify as somebody's slave, somebody's follower. I'm the captain of my fate, master of my soul. The saying goes like that. Jesus is follow. And it's following him who himself denied himself. You realize that. Jesus, who's the son of God, came down. He stepped down. He humbled himself, became as a man. Read Philippians 2. In verse 7 and 8, he even emptied himself of his glory, not of his divinity, but of, the, of the, the, the consciousness of glory and, and of the, the great, expansive, glorious divinity that he could have shown at any time, but he withheld himself that he might endure the suffering that was before him. Jesus himself came not to do his own will. He came to do his Father's will. Not to speak his own word, but to speak the Father's word and to give the glory to God. Jesus did that as the great suffering servant of Jehovah who himself is God. That's the example. Read Philippians 2, the example of Christmas, the example of the crucifixion, the death and the burial of the Savior is so that we might get along and we might esteem each other highly that we might be in this serving business following Jesus selflessly so that we're not gaining followers for ourselves, nor is the preacher, nor is the church, but so that we're all in it for Jesus. And that means, too, taking up the cross. What does that mean? Well, it's a voluntary thing. Take up your cross, he says. Now, there's an allusion here to the public ex execution of sinners, the hand of the Roman Empire. Jesus himself will take up his cross, and that meant taking up the cross piece and carrying it to the place of crucifixion. We know that that's what Jesus did until he, he was about to crumble because he'd been so beaten and so on that Simon, the Cyrene, took it up for him. But it was the way of the Romans to make the person who would be executed for heinous crimes, they said, and to bear the cross piece and this piece of wood. And there would be, you see, not just death awaiting them, but public humiliation. 
You are going to be tried here and your death publicized and made known to everybody so that you were ashamed of your sins. So the person crucified was of the greatest sinner and threat to society. And Jesus says, you take up that cross. And what he's alluding to here is the fact that there's suffering for his his sake that awaits. That's what he's saying. He has just said that he must suffer, and now he's saying you must suffer. And denying yourself, that's hard enough, because you're not getting to fulfill the lusts of your flesh. There's something that's hard also, and that's suffering for Jesus. This is so important for a Christian. Martin Luther said, every Christian must be a crucian, referring to the cross, must bear the cross. Now, beloved, sometimes I wonder if in the congregation, everyone who confesses Christ or who is a son of the, or a daughter of the congregation is really there bearing a cross. There's a lot of Christians in Christendom, that which goes by Christianity, that hardly know a thing about Jesus and hardly are concerned about following him. And you can tell very easily because they're not willing to suffer for him. They're not suffering for him. Jesus says, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul does through Philippians. And there's hardly any of that today. Ours is comfortable Christianity. Ours is crossless Christianity. That is, we say and believe in Jesus' cross, but we show we're not so interested in following him so closely that it leads to death and suffering. Now, the idea of bearing the cross then is connected with following Jesus. Lots of people like to say about any suffering, oh, we're, we have a lot of crosses we're bearing. That cancer, that's bearing a cross. We uh, have a bad relationship, maybe divorce, that's a cross. We're sick, that's, a, that's bearing a cross. But that's not the idea of the Bible. Bearing a cross is in connection with our discipleship and following Jesus. It is not doing evil and instead doing good for which we get in trouble by the world. Sometimes the cross can be God's own providential chastising of us because he wants us to be more like Jesus. So that could be called bearing a cross too. But oftentimes it's in the form of persecution and our being tempted by the world and the devil and our flesh to go this way and being ridiculed by that world and and mocked even by our family and friends. And and God says, you follow me. That's all that matters. And you bear your cross and I'll be with you. And that is even to the losing of the life. The losing not only of our dignity, but even to the losing of our very life. Now, of course, the ultimate expression of losing life is when we die and expire. But really, beloved, this is a losing of a life that principally happens as soon as we are born again. And so that 
we die to self and we now are those who live for Jesus. This is how Paul expresses it when he says, I live, nevertheless not I, but Christ in me. You see, there's this positive here. You're dying to self, you're, you're, you're losing your life, you're taking up your cross, and Jesus now is seen in you and, and living in you. And so the exact opposite of what some people think is Christianity and therapeutic Christianity, it's all about self-realization. The exact opposite is true of the Christian discipleship. It's not self-realization. It's Christ-realization. Christ more, me less. Is that your Christianity? Is that mine? Christ more every day and you less every day. As you take up your cross and deny yourself and follow him. That is the amazing way, beloved. The amazing way of the cross. And it's impossible, just like following Jesus in general is impossible, but for the grace of God, putting you on the way of following him. So following that way, the way of sanctification and holiness, that's, that's impossible too. Isn't that amazing? God says, here's the way and the truth and the life, and here's the narrow way that I put you on, and he makes it all impossible. And he makes it all impossible with men that we might know that all things are possible with God. And that, though it be impossible for us, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us even to the death of self. No matter where God sends us. Here's a way to remember the truth of impossible. Impossible? Him possible. Not my word, somebody else's. But it's true. Him possible. That's where Jesus is leading the disciples, see. Very wise he is. He's, he's just speaking in these words that are rather cryptic. They don't even know that he's going to go to the cross. They can't understand this. They don't know the difference between his death and their demise. And we know, though, that his cross is, is cursed and ours is not. Great big difference. And yet still impossible. But he's trying, he's trying and succeeding. The wisdom of God is succeeding here in leading us to follow more. Leading us to keep ourselves from ourselves and to give him all the glory for the outcome. And this is my final point here. There's this great incentive that Jesus presents here in different ways that leads the disciples to have hope and a lively hope that leads them to do this, even though it's hard and impossible. And we don't know tomorrow. 
We don't know why God's leading us to Philadelphia or through this valley or South America, wherever we're going. But we know he's leading us. And by the grace of God, we're following him. He gives us this incentive, and he does this by way of comparing and contrasting the, the profits that we can have in this world. And, and I, I, this could be a whole other sermon, and so could all the way to verse 28. But he, he holds out life to those who lose their life. They're going to find life. He holds out profit of the soul by comparing and contrasting gaining the whole world and losing one's own soul. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What can a man or will a man give in exchange for his soul? So he's comparing the life that you lose and the life that you gain and the Jesus that you gain with the world that you lose. And he's saying this is, ought to be an incentive because Jesus is greater than all the world and your soul is more valuable and gaining the whole world. That's what he's saying, first of all. And we'll just dwell on that a bit. There been a lot of people who've lived, and we can learn from these bad examples, I suppose. And they've had the world. You read of them. Don't read too much of them, beloved. But if you're making sermons about it, you better know what you're talking about. There's a lot of people who've lived, and they've had the world. And we can admire those. they got the world. And their houses go up for sale, and they're $47 million. And what's $47 million? I can't even imagine that. And they've lived the life of uh, popularity and fame, all that's in the world, wealth, gold, and silver they've had. And uh, they own all the land in the Midwest, whatever they are. And they give away all their stuff. They're known for being great philanthropists, lovers of men, though they're not lovers of God. And this can be admirable, and we can say, wow, that's, that's something. I wish I had that. And they got more than I do because they, they have, they're married or they're settled in a job, and I've never been able to settle down. And at least that, if I could have that part of the world that the world says is, is a good thing. And so we can envy this stuff. And, but Jesus is saying, what is that? Compared to your life, your soul, your, your heart, your existence as a human. Which existence? With me is everything. See, he's comparing having the world and, and dying and, and living now with having Jesus and dying now, but living in him. That's what he's saying. There's different things there on this side. There's life now and the world now and in all the world, he says. Oh, you can have it all. Or there's a soul now and nothing. You're not even allowed to have yourself there, though you're going to find yourself in me, in me. There's the balance. Even as God says, Cattle on a thousand hills are mine, and what's the nations compared to me? And nothing. They go up, and I'm, I'm heavy. I'm 
glorious, I'm God. So Jesus compares a life with him of self-denial and cross-taking and following and being blessed with the life of the world. That goes up, that's nothing. This goes down, it's everything. Now, beloved, how do I say that to you? And how do you hear that? How do I hear that? How? How do we know that? How do we taste and see this this riches of another world called the kingdom of heaven? How do we know how valuable forgiveness is and peace with God is and contentment in ordinary things with extraordinary grace? How do we know that? Beloved, you know. Simply by believing. And by acting upon the word now, by faith. Dying to self. Living to Jesus. That's how. And living in light of eternity, which Jesus says is the great thing, and it's near, he says. A lot of people have been confused and complexed about this. For the Son of Man, he says, will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, there's three ways that people have interpreted this. The first is, he's referring to the transfiguration. Look at Matthew 17, and in the passages, in the parallel passages, right after that, Jesus goes up to the mount, and he turns, his glory is seen there, and Moses and Elijah are there doing homage to him and affirming him that he is the the biblical Messiah. And the disciples are overwhelmed there. That's what people say is is referred to here. I I don't believe so. There's there's too much here that, that doesn't fit with the transfiguration. Others say that this is the, uh, the time when Jesus comes at, at the end of time, and for sure he comes in glory with his angels and will reward each at that day, which is judgment day. But now that's, how does that fit with some standing here who will not taste death till they see the man, Son of Man coming in his kingdom? So others say this instead, at 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, and the Jews were rejected as the people of God, and the church was really established in the kingdom of heaven, that's when Jesus came in his glory. But I say this, beloved, and this seems to fit everything, that Jesus is referring to the fact that when he died, when he rose again, and when the Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, there was a coming of the Son of Man. And there was a foretaste and a beginning of his coming at the end of time, which inaugurated the end of history. Here's why I say this. In Matthew chapter 26, in verse 64, Jesus, before the high priest Caiaphas, affirms under oath that he's the Christ, the Son of God, just what he has elicited from Peter here. The, the, the high priest says, you answer nothing, and... I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. That's what he said. And right after that, here's what he said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, from now on, 
you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now that sounds like the end of time, doesn't it? It is. The beginning of the end of time. And that's why Jesus can say that there's some who've not tasted, who, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming with his angels. And the idea is that he begins to come for the second time in glory when he's taken up into glory to the right hand of God and he begins to fulfill the counsel of God of the New Testament age till the end of time. This whole time, as Revelation says, is God's time to come again. And this, to be brief, having to be brief, is the incentive for all that is cross-like today. Jesus is coming. The first incentive is the world is nothing compared to life with God. The second is this world's going to end. And you're going to be rewarded for all your suffering by grace. And you will enter the kingdom of God even though it was blood for you you had to shed. Even though you had to renounce a relationship that was illicit. Even though you had to endure the mockery of the world or you were denied a job and, a, and an elevation of status in your job because you wouldn't work on the Lord's day. Something like that. And even though the preacher was put into prison because he actually said there's some things wrong with this world. And the world didn't like it. The incentive is it will soon be done, this world. And there will be judgment, righteous judgment. And upon all the wicked who ignore Jesus' claims and to refuse to follow him, God will rain fire and brimstone. But upon all the righteous who lost everything maybe in this life, but who had peace with God, they will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, that's your incentive now. Though it be a cross, that's our incentive as a church of the cross. Does it matter what the world says or offers? Or does Jesus matter? Is there anything between follow and me? Amen. Lord, we pray that you would give us to follow Jesus. Though it be a cross, though we renounce our own self-righteous selves, though we lose our life and don't go after the world, God, give me Jesus. Give me life in him and life increasingly in him. Lord, I confess, we confess we've been following, but it seems like from afar to get too close to Jesus is dangerous. You've said it's always right to follow Jesus, but it's not always safe. Lord, may we count the cost and rather live by Jesus in danger than comfortable and safe at a distance. For closer to Jesus, Lord, we learn more his worth, and the preciousness of his blood, and 
the greatness of your love to us sinners. Lord, bless each and every one here. May we be true Christians. Deny self, take up the cross, lose our lives to gain it, and hope in heaven. Amen.